Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. As we move past the pandemic, many are asking, what's next? Some argue that now is the time for reinventing schooling. Others argue that right now we should simply focus on getting back to normal. My colleague Rick Hess argues for a third option. In his new book, The Great School Rethink, Rick argues now is the time for educators, school leaders, and policymakers to become more thoughtful and intentional in the way they approach schooling and potential changes to it. Rick isn't interested in arguing for any particular reform. Indeed, he's pretty skeptical of big top-down reform across the board. Rather, he's interested in freeing students and teachers from established routines and structures that have worn out their welcome so that schools can offer students richer educational experiences. To explain just what he has in mind, I invited Rick onto the podcast. Rick Hess is a senior fellow and director of education policy studies at AEI. He's an executive editor of Education Next, author of the Education Week blog, Rick Hess Straight Up, and founder and chairman of AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network. Rick, welcome back to the report card. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Okay, so your book is called The Great School Rethink, and I can think of a lot of ways that title might go. What do you mean by that title? Uh, sure. I'm talking about a great school rethink as opposed to what you'll hear a lot is the idea of a great reset. problem with the great reset is reset presumes you know what the heck the problem is and exactly how to set it. A great rethink presumes that you know there's a problem here, but it's useful to get real clear on what it is. And so the, the, the idea behind the great school rethink is that it's really a tool to help parents, community leaders, policymakers, educators get clear on where the points of frustration are and why it is that schools aren't doing what we want them to do and how we can actually help them do better. So you use this term, rethinkers, and I, I see how that fits right in there with the, the clever, title. Clever yeah, wordsmithing, baby. Are, are rethinkers like a new kind of ed reformer? Is that what we're doing here? How do these ideas relate? And what does a rethinker do that a typical educator might not? Um, so look, you know, when I wrote Cage Busting Leadership a long time back, people would say, well, Rick, what's a cage busting? You know, is this person a cage buster? And I'd say, no, nah, it's not really that way. It's kind of how Catholics talk about sinners and sin. Like we don't say, you know, we're less interested in they're a sinner then and that's a sin. And if you do it, it's a sinful behavior. So rethinking for me is really, there's habits of mind that you want to take. Look, let's play it off against reformers. We spent the last 20 years dealing with a whole lot of reform in education. Um, a lot of it, capital R reform, no child left behind, common core, race at the top. And it didn't really go the way we wanted. It didn't? Shockingly. Oh, shocking, shockingly. Yes. Uh, and look, the notion is this, that our school's um, have taken shape over centuries uh, to do a whole bunch of things. Uh, Horace Mann was really worried about making sure Catholic students in the 1830s and 1840s would read the King James Bible and thereby be less Catholic. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the progressive reformers wanted to get kids out of the workforce so that they could raise wages and protect these kids, and so they wanted to lock them up in schools because it was a good place to keep kids safe. What we want schools today to do today is something pretty darn different from all of that. And as we have tried to get schools into that place through these 20 years of big R reform, what we have found is that stuff doesn't actually deliver. 
if anything, schools tend to go into a defensive crouch and they start railing about these, you know, nefarious reformers and reformers get frustrated and we wind up in this standoff we've been in. Well, what a rethinker recognizes is the last couple of years have put us in a very different position. Uh, the pandemic it w- was what uh, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gold, uh, I think, used to talk of as a moment of punctuated equilibrium. It's a moment when all of these habits and routines that have created one world suddenly are blown up. And you see enormous distrust on the part of parents. You see a real appetite on the part of parents and educators for something different. You see kids dealing with new stresses and ailments. And so what a rethinker does is say, rather than plunge into this with a whole bunch of money or some program that I can dust off a shelf, how do we make sure we've got our eye on the right target? And then how do we think differently about how do we solve that, whether that is old-fashioned or newfangled? And so, you know, who's a rethinker? Anybody who's open to kind of stepping back for a moment from their assumptions and biases and saying, hey, there's opportunities to do better here. So let me push on that a little bit on the why now question, because the answer that you're going to get from a lot of people is, well, we just had this big pandemic. And so there's some what I will call happy talk that is like, now's the time to reconceptualize schools and to reinvent everything. And, you know, I understand the intent, but I I think it might be a little naive in some ways. And then there's the other folks. And I'm often in this camp that's like, y'all, we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to baseline and provide the reliable things that we know how to do, that we've learned how to do. Rethink is somewhere in between there. So, why is it important to rethink now? Sure. I mean, I think part of the point is why has reform been so frustrating? Because reform is trying to bend schools built to do one thing into something very different. And you're trying to do it with blunt force from outside when folks are. And one of the things we've learned over time is that schools are really good at repelling uh, that pressure from outside. What's different about right now is you've got lots of families and communities who've always said, well, we like our schools and everything's cool. Now saying, well, we like our kids' teachers, we like our schools, but things aren't cool. You see this kind of uh, distrust, the sense that education is going the wrong direction, show up in all kinds of metrics. More than half of parents say they'd like to have their kid home from school at least one day a week. More than half of teens say they'd like to be home from school at least one day a week uh, in school. You see frustration with career technical ed. So look, do do we just need to get back to doing what we're doing? No, because what we were doing wasn't working so great. We know there were we had stagnation on reading and math on eight. We know we had downward trends on, say, civics. And when I look at this, I say, well, go get back to doing what? Um, school time is used horrifically. We see hundreds of hours of kids' time wasted. Not, not wasted like, oh, the kids are having fun. We should have less fun. Like, they're not having fun and they're not learning anything. It's like if somebody said to me, Rick, um, you know, kids are going to spend another 100 hours running around a playground. I'm like, great. I'm all for that. What I'm not for is having kids spend hundreds of hours sitting in classrooms shuffling their feet because classes are interrupted, because technology won't work, because announcements are coming off and on at unpredictable times. Matt Kraft, uh, Brown University, friend of ours, did terrific study looking at Providence, Rhode Island schools uh, a couple years back and pointed out that the average classroom is interrupted 2,000 times a year costing kids 10 to 20 days of learning. This is not time kids are having fun. This is time kids are sitting in classroom being bored. So to my mind, the answer is not, let's get back to what we're doing. But anybody who says, oh, well, okay, 
Well, and a diagnosis like that means we need to innovate. I don't know. I don't know what the hell innovation means. I don't know what they're trying to fix. I don't know why their big proposal on teacher quality is actually going to address the issue. So it is a little different, I think, than saying, like, we just got to get back to basics. And it is somewhat different from saying we need reforms. But, but the point is that I think we've often talked about education. Like, if we can find a big enough baseball bat and hit the schoolhouse hard enough, the thing will finally start purring the way we want it to. And for me, so many of the insights, which just seem particularly apropos right now, is we do a really lousy job of understanding why we're not getting the kinds of teaching and learning we want and a really bad job of understanding what it is that we need to change if we're going to change it. So I think the book seems to be premised on the idea that educators, and I don't mean just teachers, but principals and superintendents in in general, should be more thoughtful about schooling and shouldn't take established structures, patterns, habits for granted. They need to be more critical and inquisitive and looking at things to change. But let me push back on that. Aren't many educators already unhappy with some things? I mean, many educators question, why do we do things this way? So we might already have a bunch of rethinkers out there, or potential rethinkers, and then you run up to this, yeah, but so little change, right? Why do you think that might be, especially that so little change product? And what difference do you think the arguments or the approaches in your book might make in that regard? Uh, Sure. I mean, I think, you know, right, I mean, you can be enormously frustrated with stuff and not be an agent of change. Uh, I mean, we see that anywhere you look around the world. So the fact that so many teachers and administrators are frustrated with the way schools work, that's true, but that doesn't mean you're going to rethink. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've written about over the decades in cage-busting teacher and cage-busting leadership and so much else is that we've created these passive-aggressive cultures in schooling where lots of people in classrooms, their response to dysfunctional policies, to silly directives, is to close their door and tell each other, this too shall pass. I mean, one of the things you get when you sit down with principals or superintendents is the sense of how often they feel that they are constrained in what they can do and what they should do and what's politically feasible and what they're even allowed to do. Um, And sometimes what they think they're allowed to do is not what they're allowed to do, but they're operating with bad information. So look, the first thing is that a level of frustration doesn't lead you towards rethinking or improvement. That's about habits of mind. It's about how are you channeling that frustration. And I think whether it's educators or parents or others in the community, there's lots of points of frustration, and this stuff gets funneled unproductively. So what do I have in mind? Um, we've been having uh, over the last 18 months or you know, a particularly uh, aggressive version of the same school choice debate we've had for 30 years, which is whose side are you on? Are you on the side of empowering parents and giving them the right to find the school or opportunity that's right for their kid? Or are you on the side of public education and protecting it? Now, that's how people in our line of work tend to talk about school choice. You know who doesn't tend to talk about school choice that way? Any actual human being, uh, particularly parents. 75% of parents give their kids public school in A or B, and 70 75% of parents are for charter schooling and vouchers and education savings accounts. They don't see a conflict. They're like, I like my kid's school because it's a huge part of my community and it's where I get to know my neighbors, but 
I also believe parents should get to, you know, another debate that doesn't resonate with real human beings is the way we often talk about testing. We talk about, are you for testing and accountability and, or are you an anti-tester? Real parents, real teachers are usually like, well, kids got to get assessed. Got to know whether a kid is mastered what they're supposed to master. How well are they reading? How well can they do math? But that doesn't mean I believe any of this stuff should be used in some indecipherable algorithm to rank schools and then tell me my local school that I like is failing. So what is a, what does rethinking have to add to this? Well, rethinking starts from the premise that so many of these debates that we spend so much energy on actually feel really far removed from what actual parents and community leaders and educators are wrestling with. And maybe that's a function of the beast. We live in a polarized time, and these debates play out on social media. And those of us who get this is what we do all day, we're supposed to take sides. Um, but maybe it turns out that a lot of our debates and a lot of our expert opinions aren't really helpful to folks trying to figure out how do you both figure out where a kid is at academically and support them without turning this thing into a political football. And so what I'm trying to do um, in addition to these other important abstract debates we have, is give folks in that world tools that are more helpful to actually do in the day-to-day. So an important premise of the book is, hey, we should question how schools are operated, how these systems are set in stone. In fact, they're not necessarily set in stone. Um, for somebody who's going to be a rethinker, what kind of prep do they need to do? I mean, one could think that schools can be organized differently. Does somebody need to understand how education works in other settings in every other country? Do they have to be a researcher to do this rethinking well? No. I mean, there's no particular <laughs> criteria, right? What you do need is, is I think a lot of times all of us um, have a sense that schools are immutable things. You'll hear this a lot from folks who um, are defensive about public education as it stands, is when somebody suggests that we rethink how we pay teachers or rethink teacher licensure or talk about how do we integrate technology into learning or talk about how we expand um, choices for parents. They'll say it's an attack on public education. And that presumes that there is a very specific definition of what a public school is, what public education is, and that if you don't abide by that, you're involved in a war. And what happens, of course, is there are absolutely critics of the way we've done things who lean into that language, who talk about blowing up school districts, who talk about abolishing zip code education and doing away with failing government schools. And I don't think any of this language is any more clarifying than saying, I don't know what that means. So look, um, what you need to do, I think, to be a rethinker is you need to be able to look at what schools are doing and ask, is this serving the purpose? Are we actually, you know, we say that we want schools to educate kids rigorously. Is that how we're actually organizing instruction? Is that how time is being spent? Are kids being given the opportunities to do that? Are teachers being put in a position where they can do that? And a good way to get perspective, as, as you suggested, is to get outside of what we're used to. And there's lots of ways to do that. The way I do it in the book, mostly, um, is I just talk about history. Why is it that teacher licensure looks like it does? Why is it that a class, uh, class sizes look like they do? Um, why is it that we have this set of experiences around parents' relationship with school? 
or with the way technology gets used. Because I think what happens a lot of times, I learned this years ago, um, many, many years ago, and I wrote the same thing over and over, is that sometimes these debates, which feel very emotional and personal in the moment, one way to make them feel a little less emotionally intense um, and create more room to actually have an honest conversation and reflection is to make it about how we got here rather than whose side are you on. So, Rick, you know, I, I study education, right? And oftentimes it's like through a telescope, right? Like I wish I was in schools more, but I'm not in them on a day-to-day basis. You know who is? Teachers. They are in schools every day, in and out. And it seems to me part of the trouble when I was a teacher was like it was what I knew. It was the routines. And so perhaps if I'd ask who has the toughest time trying to make a transition in a mindset about rethinking education, it might be teachers who are day in, day out. You know, the water's wet. What's water, right? Um, What is a teacher who's embracing this, trying to do this rethinking thing? How's their practice or behavior going to look different? from an educator who's sort of not embracing it. Again, sort of like on the ground. How's that look different? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and first off, let me challenge the premise just a little bit. Um, you know, like I talked about years ago in uh, Letters to Young Ed Reformer, I said, look, the problem with thinking about this stuff as a teacher is you're so close to it. You know this school inside out. You know, you live it every day. And that creates, right, uh, you're used to certain things and you only see those things. The flip side, of course, is lots of folks who think of themselves as broad-minded, as, you know, well-versed in this stuff. Um, we, you know, those of us at universities and think tanks have lots of time to read papers and do fly-by visits or look at data, but we actually have infinitely less feel for those real day-to-day kind of bumps uh, in the road. And so I think, first off, we all need to be kind of aware that we're bringing a limited field of vision to what we're, but uh, particularly for educators, look, I mean, I think part of it is when I do, when I work with say uh, teachers um, on my teacher leadership stuff, one of the activities I'll do, it's in the book, is I'll put them in teachers and groups. I'll give them a piece of chart paper and I'll say, let's list, just list all the different activities you did in the last week. And in 10, 15 minutes, most groups of teachers find it no trouble at all to list 50, maybe 100 different things. And then I'll say, all right, let's circle the five that you think have the biggest impact for kids. And then we do that. And then I'll say, all right, let's 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 put a star next to the ones that you spent the most time on. And two things stand out to me. One is just the sheer number of things that we actually have educators do. And the second is how little alignment there frequently is between the things that I think they or you or I would think really matter for kids and the things that they wind up spending a lot of time on. And look, what do we do? What can a teacher by themselves do with that? Not a lot. That's part of the problem is like if all of these different things have to be done from coffee being made in the pot in the teacher's lounge uh, to the pencil sharpener um, being fixed to... You, you know, somebody finding lunch for kids who didn't bring their lunch. To, like, all, if somebody's got to do it and schools are set up in a way that, well, it just falls on the teacher, what can a teacher do by themselves? Not much. So part of it is that the project of rethinking needs to be collective, that what teachers need to do is they need to do these kinds of things in concert with folks in a position in the building, whether it's a grade level leader or a team leader or a school principal 
or central office in a way that you start to change these routines. Because, you know, look, if you go, if you talk to folks who work like in a hospital setting, the amount of times that like a pediatric surgeon spends um, feeding patients jello or unloading ambulances or filling out insurance paperwork is pretty much nil. Like if you're a highly trained, respected pediatric surgeon, the goal is to set up the place so that you spend your time doing pediatric surgery. And I'm I'm hearing you say that's a good thing. I think that's a good okay. thing. Okay, call me crazy. And it seems to me that if we've got, to the extent that we've got skilled, accomplished educators, part of this work needs to be how do we change the way schools work so that they're spending more time doing the things that make a difference for kids. And again, how much can an educator do by themselves on this? I don't think very much. I think it has to be done by changing the routines and rhythms and cultures of schools and school systems. And teachers have a big part of that, but they can't do it alone. Okay, so to zoom out a little bit from the teacher level, you know, teachers alone can't pull this off. And, you know, look, the grade school rethink, I know you're not saying, hey, it's the grade school reset, do this. And I would also add that Undoubtedly, there are some schools out there that are actively employing these sort of techniques and so forth. But when you look at a school and you're saying, this is what a school that is doing rethinking might look like, it's not going to be one set thing, but I surely expect it to be differentiable from a school that's not doing it. So paint us that picture. How is a school that is being operated by people who are consistently rethinking going to look different from one where they're not? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think there's three things. One, um, they can explain to you why they're doing something. When you, when you ask, hey, why are you guys doing this? There is a clear rationale that's tied. We do this because. Second thing is... You know, if you ask them, well, do you know if it's doing what it's supposed to do? They can give you an answer. They can say, you know, we think, yes, here's why. Maybe it's data points. Maybe it's anecdote. Maybe it's observation. Or they say, well, we don't know, but we're looking at it. And then the third thing is you say, well, how do you guys make sure that you're anticipating what's next, figuring out what's working, what needs to change, and they have a vision for how they are tackling things? So it's that, you know, is it, is it w- what kind of instructional model do they use? Is it STEM-centric? Is it, God forbid, innovative? I don't know. I don't care. Um, you know, you can see schools where kids are seated in rows and nobody's got a device out and kids are working on computational drills. And I would be 100% comfortable saying that that is a rethinking school if they can answer those three questions we put out there. And you can look at schools that have every flim-flam kind of, uh, you know, exciting thing that's being billed at the latest Ed Conference. And I would say they got nothing to do with rethinking if they can't answer those questions. Even 21st century schools? Shockingly, right? Shocking. So uh, let me zoom out to leadership before I turn the tables on you here, because leadership's going to play a role here. If you have somebody who is actively engaged not just like rethinking from the principal or superintendent's office down, but actually fostering the kind of collaboration and discussion that you have to do to make this happen. There's a clear role for leadership. Describe what that takes. It doesn't sound like rocket science, but it doesn't sound like every school leader I've ever met. Yeah. Well, you know, and honestly, right, I mean, leadership in different contexts means different things. Uh, If you're in a place where the union's intransigent 
and where kids are just not showing up to school and where you have abandoned any pretense of discipline or rigor, uh, leadership is going to look very different than in a place where you've got a reasonably healthy functioning organization that you're leading. So that's just a given. But what do I think of as kind of a, a rethinking leader in particular or whatever that other stuff? Look, it's an awareness. We talked a moment ago about how teachers are intimately aware of the, you know, they're close up. They they see how these things play out in real life in their classroom every day. And those the further you get away from those classrooms, the more abstract these things become. And look, um, a superintendent is a whole lot closer to the stuff of their district than you or I. So we recognize that. But they're not nearly as close as that teacher is. So what they do is a rethinker is try to make sure that they are constantly asking what's working, what's not working in our schools. How do these things play out? Somebody's coming to town pitching you a new uh, tech platform that promises uh, it will create individualized uh, computer-assisted me- uh, mentoring. Well, that's well. Is that what your kids need? Where are your kids getting bottlenecked? Where are the problems? What support are they not needing? Are they actually going to utilize this thing? Somebody's telling you that they've got this high dosage tutoring program. Swell. How do they staff it? How does it work? Who, who's going to build the relationships with these? So a lot of this is starting off by saying, what's actually happening in our schools? Where's all our time going? New Mexico just added two weeks to their academic year at an extraordinary cost a couple weeks back. Okay. You will talk to lots of advocates who tell you American kids need more time in school. American kids spend more time in school than their peers in industrialized OECD nations around the world. They have a longer school day. Our kids, uh, in many cases, spend a lot more time on public tra- on transit, getting to schools. So when you say they need to spend more time in school, is that without regard to how well we're using this? Because I mentioned Matt Kraft before. There's the, uh, the Columbia University Time Diary study from about 20 years ago that shockingly has never been replicated, which suggested only about 60% of school time is actually used for instruction. Um, How about saying we need to have kids spend more time learning and engaged and less time sitting in buildings being bored out of their gourds? That might help us on two counts. Um, But leaders need to actually be collecting that data. They need to be looking at that data. They need to be asking these hard questions. And in very few districts that I've been in, are we asking those kinds of questions or collecting those kind of data? Yeah, so let me repeat back what I've heard to make sure I'm getting it. You're saying New Mexico is doing this effort to make up for COVID learning loss by adding two weeks to their year, which, you know, not a criticism. Fine. Great. I think maybe brave. However, there might be a lot of slack time in the school year that we're working with. It's not as productive as it should be. The rethinker is going to come at this and say, let's make that time more productive. Let's get to work. Is that right? Let's clean your plate. You know, I mean, think about think about this way. New Mexico adding two weeks, that's 10 instructional days. That's maybe 60 hours if you're using it all. Kids are already in school across this country, about 1,100 hours uh, an academic year. Um, you know, if you look at the Matt Kraft stuff, uh, if you look at stuff that's been done in concert with OECD, if you look at the Columbia University Time Study, if you read Doug Lamov, on Teach Like a Champion, it's pretty easy to estimate that something like 30 to 40% of the school year right now is not being used uh, in ways that actually promotes learning, even if kids are paying attention and showing up for class. So what are we talking about? 30 to 40% of 1,100 hours? That's something like three to 400 hours. 
So if you could simply use that time, I don't know, 15% more effectively, you've already gotten back as much as New Mexico gets through its two extra weeks. And the kids and teachers aren't spending two extra weeks in school. And you've got less frittered away, frustrating time going on. Now, are you going to say to me, in addition to that, I'd also like to add two weeks? Fine. I'm not opposed to giving kids more time in school, um, if that makes sense. And it works for those kids and those families and those educators. But it seems to me that what we tend to do is we put the, the cart before the horse because we've got a cart. And it's complicated to figure out what the horse is doing. So we just put the cart first. All right, Rick, in your book, you focus on several aspects of schooling, particularly time use, teacher talent, use of technology, school and parent relationships, school choice. Um, These are all prime for rethinking. We'll get some of those in a bit. But first, let me turn the tables on you. Rethinking is not just for particular issues, but it's a general approach for thinking about how we approach schooling. So um, I'm not trying to quiz you. Maybe I am, Rick. But um, I'm going to throw out some topics, and I want you to help illustrate how a rethinker might approach these questions of schooling, how rethinking can be applied to subjects that aren't necessarily in your book, so these are not part of the script, and open up the doors on how much of schooling might be open to this. Uh, You ready? Sure. All right, here we go. First one, career and technical education. CTE, baby. Um, So first off, and and for listeners who who don't quite picture this, in the book, there's about two or three dozen exercises. And one, they're all intended to be done in concert because we were talking a couple of moments ago about how rethinking has got to be about changing cultures and systems. It's not just somebody at a think tank or a foundation coming up with a cool idea. Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the nature of the exercise is natural alluding to. Look, on CTE, one way to think about this is what the heck are we trying to accomplish? Um, we've been doing CTE, at least since we've been doing vocational ed, um, you know, which was coined before but formalized over a century ago in the cardinal principles of education. And most vocational education has, to be kind, stunk over time. Uh, frequently, it's become a dumping ground for kids who weren't on the academic track, either because they weren't into academics or because folks figured it was easier to channel the kids there than to educate them. Um, what we want a CTE to be something different. We want it to be academically rigorous. We want it to actually interface meaningfully with skills out there. All right. Well, let's start from there. So the idea that it is a nifty program doesn't tell us very much. Question ought to become, is CTE something that ought to exist under the auspices of a traditional diploma? Do we want to modify our diplomas? We talk a lot today about throwing out Carnegie units and going to mastery-based learning. Is If we're talking about mastery-based graduation, for instance, is the idea that you will master all the same stuff of a core high school diploma in addition to mastering everything in a CTE program? Or is there something that we're going to swap out here? I don't know what the answer is, but that seems to me a fundamental design question. Second is how much of CTE do we want to happen within the confines of traditional school district? One of the problems for running career and technical ed programs historically is that getting somebody who was good at programming or good at repairing a car, who was also a certified teacher was actually really tough. Yeah, that's tough. Folks who are good at this stuff tend to just do it. So one of the solutions to this is you move this stuff away from credentialed teachers into the purview of folks who do this for a living. So that's either something that looks more like an apprenticeship or it's school districts working with folks who are not educators. This can run into teacher of record requirements at the state level. So who should be an educator in this program? And do we need 
I would argue for broadening the definition of educator. I would argue that we need to think differently about what does it mean to complete that diploma in terms of if you're in a program that's going to make you employable. And I think we got to think about the, the financing of this and the way these programs are designed. Um, a lot of times CTE programs are hamstrung because we also expect to either them to happen at school or students to make sure that these things are built in concert with their regular attendance schedule, which is tough for a whole bunch of uh, work where students might be doing it on weekends or regular hours. How do we build that into the model? So rather than start by how do we make CTE fit into high school by giving it a cool name and a cool brand, let's start by what does it mean to be to really give kids terrific, uh, you know, remunerative career technical education and then work from there. Okay, let's switch gears. This is something that is not an educational buzzword, but I would say is fundamental to how schools run. Rules about cell phones in school. Yeah, math is fun. <laughs> fundamental. Basically. Yeah, um, look, th- there's at least two schools of thought here. One is that we got to get uh, cell phones the hell out of school. Doug Lamov wrote a terrific piece on this last. I think he was on the report card, he if I remember. That. And, you know, I think it's a compelling argument. And there's other folks, uh, my buddy Michael Horn, for one, who says that's insane. Um, kids are going to be on these devices. So, look, I think first off that this is one of those abstract debates that's like testing or sculpture that's important. I'm not, I'm not going to settle it. I mean, I think you can make an argument either way. Um, but what are we trying to accomplish? I think the first thing we need to recognize is that kids are spending an insane amount of time on their devices. Uh, the data tells us that tweens are spending like six hours a day or more. Uh, teens, uh, it's getting up closer to eight hours. Uh, most of this is social media and gaming. This stuff, I think, I may, may, it's probably because I'm really old, but I think that much time spent by kids in this stuff is just hugely destructive. And I think Jonathan Haidt has made a pretty compelling case that you can see the evidence showing up in their social and mental health. So one, I think whether they're using these devices in schools or not, Um, We have to be in the business of making sure kids are spending less time on this. First off, that means it can't just be about the schools. It means it's also got to be about what parents are doing. Parents are saying, well, my kid needs to be able to call home. I need to have a GPS where my kid is. Fine. But what are we doing to educate parents about why this is bad for their kid? What are we doing to create expectations on parents that they're going to tell the kid it's 10 o'clock? Your phone comes into my room. I'm plugging it in next to my bed to recharge tonight. You're going. You're either reading a book or you're going to sleep. So it can't just be an educational question. It's got to be both an educational and a how are parents raising their kids question. And we've got to think about that in concert. And then in schools, what are we doing? Whether or not um, a school's got kids with devices, what are we doing to prepare kids to use these devices responsibly? So if you're going to let them have them in school, what are you doing to set clear expectations? to make sure kids know when they're allowed to be on, when, they're, when they need to be off, about how kids can utilize them, whether it's a with phones or no phone school environment. You know, think about driver's ed uh, when it was introduced uh, close to a century ago. The premise of driver's ed was we're going to be putting young people behind, uh, you know, in a ton of steel and letting them drive around, potentially putting other people at risk. Schools need to work with parents to make sure that these kids have an opportunity to learn how to use these things. Well, where are our driver's ed analogs for these hugely powerful, hugely potentially destructive pieces of mind-blowing technology? Too often, it seems, that it's a couple of happy rules written on the chalkboard first day or the whiteboard first day of the year, and then you kind of turn them loose. And that's a lot like giving 16-year-olds a key to a Harley and saying, 
Try not to hurt anybody. That's particularly compelling to me as I just let my son Charlie have the keys to a two-ton truck to drive around, knowing that that is dangerous. But it's also something that strikes me when we put the internet in kids' pockets and we just expect it to turn out okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, Charlie getting the keys. And my impression is that there was some degree of preparation and training before he got to sit behind the wheel. Is, is that fair? There was. And as much as I complain about the nanny state of Maryland, I'm grateful for the 60-hour requirement of, of student driving training. And I mean, I think what's insane, you know, I mean, our oldest is nine. And so this is a, he's got tons of kids in his third grade who have cell phones. And, you know, he doesn't. Uh, and he won't for a number of years. And he will grow bitter and resentful about it in due course. <laughs> um, but, but it seems to me that there's also a collective action problem. I completely understand kids need to be able to call home. Some kids need device. But okay, again, what, well, let's, let's think about the problem we're solving and how we help families solve this. And what drives me crazy is when I hear parents who are giving kids this technology at impressionable ages, and then they're befuddled and frustrated by how kids are using it. I'm like, if you gave if you gave your fourth grader the keys to a two-ton truck, and then you were like, well, why did you back into the garage? I'd be like, what the heck did you think was going to happen? Yes, they should have rethought that plan. All right, let me move to uh, one, maybe two more. How about class size? Rethinking class size? Sure. I mean, what, what the hell is class size for starters? Um, you know, is class size, class size is a number of kids in a room with a teacher. And now if you look at, American school staffing, for instance, you know that we have a teacher for every 15 kids, uh, give or take a fraction, across the country. But if you walk into classrooms, you know you don't see 15 kids to a teacher. You see something that looks fundamentally different. In a lot of places, it's 20 or 25 kids to a teacher. In some places, it's 30 or more kids to a teacher. So the first off, what the hell is class size anyway? What are we doing with these people who are there to educate kids? Second thing is we've made a decision over time in this country that student enrollment has grown uh, very modestly over the last 30 or 50 years, Um, but school staffing has grown exponentially. We have hired teachers much faster than we've hired kids over the last 50 or 70 years, and we've hired non-teaching school staff. We've hired them at about eight times the rate we've added kids over the last 50 or 70 years. So one way to think about this is if we had the same teacher-student ratios that we had, say, in the 1970s, when our 12th graders, for what it's worth, did as well in the NAEP as they do today, though there's questions about whether you should put any credence in that at all. But if we, had, we have roughly doubled, close to doubled the student-teacher ratio since the 1970s, we could have made another bet. We could have said, instead of hiring twice as many teachers relative to kids, we're going to pay teachers twice as much. If we had done that, the NEA reported a couple weeks ago that median teacher pay across the country is about $66,000 a year with benefits, which make the per-teacher cost closer to 100. What we could have done is put all that money into teacher pay. Average teacher pay, um, if we'd gone instead of from a class size ratio from 27 to 1 to about 15 to 1. Uh, would be something more on the order of $120,000 a year, but we wouldn't have to pay benefits for half those teachers. So you could put those dollars also into salary. Average teacher pay across the U.S. right now could be about $130,000 without an additional nickel of taxpayer spending 
if we had simply chosen to invest in teacher quality rather than teacher quantity. Another conversation if we then start talking about all the non-teaching staff. So class size, would that have been a good bet? In some cases, no. I think in some cases, yes. Again, the rethinking premise is not, here's what you need to do everywhere, but what are we doing with these kids? We know from the research, for instance, uh, the class size stuff out of Tennessee, that for vulnerable kids in K2, there's some evidence that really small classes made a difference. 8, 10, 12 kids. That makes intuitive sense to us as former teachers. That seems, that, that seems right. That seems right. So, okay, well, that's great. But that's very different from taking an average class size from 21 down to 19 or from 24 to 21. And I don't know. I mean, it's been a hell of a long time since I was actually in front of a K-12 classroom. But one of my firm impressions was I taught five sections a day of high school social studies. And whether that class was 25 or 40 didn't make a huge difference in how I taught or interacted with the kids. Um, Much bigger difference, I think, if you go from 25 to 10. So partly, where are we choosing to create small classes? How are we thinking about what is a large class? What are we expecting teachers to do based on that class size? Instead, what we've had is a conversation about class size for 40 years, which is more or or less along the lines of, well, let's spend a little more money. Let's hire a few more bodies. We're going to have a lot of long-term subs because we can't find enough teachers anyway. We're going to worry endlessly about the staffing crisis. And then whether a class is 18 or 28, we're going to teach it the same. It seems to be pretty much the worst of all possible worlds. So it seems like to do the rethinking, you're asking people to ask about the trade-offs, to look at it in concrete terms on the ground, and to sort of examine the decisions that we've already made and what we might otherwise do and have that discussion before we decide on next steps. Yeah. And, you know, if it boils down to one thing, what problem are you trying to solve? Right. Class size shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to help kids learn. And if smaller classes in a particular case makes a huge difference, great. But if spending those dollars, getting a teacher who's twice as well paid is going to have a much better impact. Let's focus on what are we trying to accomplish rather than on a couple of goals that we, you know, jot down on a piece of paper uh, at some education goals conference you know, in Washington or the state capitol. All right, Rick, it's time for Grade It. You ready? Sure. All right. First off, closed-toed shoes. Uh, D minus, baby. Not comfortable. And what is comfortable? Uh, flip-flops. Baby. Okay, okay. Just wanted to make sure we were on brand here. Uh, charter schooling, and I'm not talking about the concept. I'm talking about the practice that we've seen in charter schools over the past couple of decades. Uh, B. Solid B. Um a lot less rethinking than I might have hoped uh, 20, 25 years ago. And I think a number of these have gone in for uh, philosophical approaches that drive me nuts. But on the whole, I think, uh, you know, I think a good solid B. After Brady left, Bill Belichick. Oh, it's not been the best couple of years for the for the coach. Uh, you know, I'd say uh, a, a CC plus. He's uh, treading water right now. Treading water. Okay, fair enough. Um, speaking of treading water, Congress. Solid D minus. And what's your main problem? Uh, you know, I think Yuval Levin nailed it, right? Workhorses have all left the building and we're left with a whole bunch of not very, not very handsome show horses. <laughs> College degrees. Oh, baby. There's, there's an F. There's a good solid F. I, I have no idea what they're measuring or why we should care. <laughs> 
And uh, I'll go one last one. And this is a little bit of a gimme, but I'm going to throw it to you anyway. Media coverage of education policy. F minus. F minus. And why is that? Why is that? You know, it's because it is both uh, gullible and profoundly biased. Um, And I'm like, it's tough to do both. Usually if you're gullible, you're at least kind of, you know, you're just gullible and even-handed. But it's tough when something is gullible and biased. All right. So in the book, you focus on a number of aspects of schooling that you think are ripe for a rethink. Let's draw out a couple of those. And one that you haven't mentioned too much is teaching and teaching talent. So why do you think the way we use or cultivate teaching talent is in need of a rethink? Sure. We touched on some of this, you know, this exercise where I ask teachers to talk about what they did all day. Look, one key thing to keep in mind is that we use this notion of teacher or teaching as an umbrella for a ton of stuff, right? I mean, anybody who's listening who's ever spent a day in or in front of a classroom knows this. Uh, Teachers do everything from putting a hand on a shoulder and giving an encouraging word uh, to setting clear disciplinary expectations to explaining things to, well, not all teachers are good at all of this. Yet when we talk about this, we tend to talk about effective teachers or talented teachers. Well, what's that mean? I mean, who's, it's like saying a good attorney. Well, a good attorney at what? Somebody who's good at persuading a jury? Somebody who's good at reading through reams of government documents? Not necessarily the same skills. <laughs> Not necessarily the same skills. Somebody who's good at landing a client, which doesn't necessarily have anything of the others. Like, so in a lot of these professional fields, there's an understanding that being good at this can mean a lot of different things in that part of the challenge is how do you create roles where we let people do more of what they do well and especially for junior um, or impressionable kind of young colleagues they come in and they play and they either learn from folks who are doing this a long time and we put them in more manageable situations and we hire support staff of all kinds paralegals or uh, you know, RNs and EMTs and all kinds of folks who do a whole lot of the stuff that isn't as challenging and is more routine. Well, in education, we don't do any of that. You look at a teacher and whether it's their first day on the job or their 5,000th, whether they're a incredible uh, reading coach or an awful reading coach, they pretty much have the same schedule. They pretty much have the same mix of activities. They're pretty much charged with doing the same things. So if your kid's a fifth grader and they're showing up and there's four fifth grade classrooms and the one of these teachers is phenomenal and one's a long-term sub, it's just a roll of the dice. Which kid do you get? Which teacher do you get? So none of this has anything to do with thinking about how do we figure out who's good at what? How do we leverage their abilities? How do we put them in a position where they're doing more good for kids? Rethinking starts from there. There's a bunch of programs out there that you folks can point to. What Carol Basile and Brent Madden are doing at ASU, what Brian Hassel has built with Opportunity Culture, Joel Rose and the folks at New Classrooms do. It's so we can get caught up talking about these models. But what I worry about is even when folks in a school district get excited, they see this model and they say, we should do that. There's very little attention to, well, why should we do that? And what kind of bigger changes should we be working towards? So you talked a little bit earlier about time and time use. And I think that's just really 
good stuff to focus on in large part because it's tough to find slack resources right like how do you wring blood out of a turnip well this is one where there's a lot of wasted time right so if there's a lot of wasted time we might be able to harvest some of that back uh, but I want to push on it a little bit because I know that there's a bunch of folks out there who will say, yeah, but that's really hard to change, right? Like there's a lot in our way there, a lot of institutional constraints, a lot of, you know, schedules are complicated, and the list can go on and on. Um, so when folks are ready to be rethinking, they're ready to go down the path, but they're also sort of like, well, I think I, I'm not sure that we can change any of these things. These things, that we got these constraints. I'm really... I'm really tied down. Um, what would you say about that? And use the schooling, uh, yeah. the school time as a subject matter. Yeah, I'd say this is all hard. I mean, if it was easy, we'd already have done it, hopefully. Um, so, A, yeah, it's hard. So, tough. If you, you want something easier, go, I don't know, go address climate change or deal with, like, I don't know, healthcare issues or the Ukraine because the world's filled with easy challenges. Um, so, one, it's hard, and sorry about that, but that's the way it is. Uh, second is some of this is... Um, some of this is structural. That's true. And we need to think about that. And there's things like Carnegie units that are fundamental. Um, a lot of it's routines and rhythms and contract language. And if it's hard to change contracts, well, tough. Again, that's the way it goes. Uh, there's rhythms and routines and things that can be changed right now. So partly it's about doing triage. What's within our immediate span of control? What's about changing particular uh, procedures or board policies or, or contract language? What's about addressing more fundamental things and federal requirements attached to grants or state law? But, you know, I mean, a real simple version of this is, uh, if you remember, I forget who it was, year, years ago in our working group, somebody with Clever, uh, Clever, which did backbone right. uh, tech for school districts, talked about a survey they had done of 1,000 teachers when they're trying to figure out where to, where to focus. And one of the things he talked about was, which a huge laugh line was he said they identified the three key complaints from teachers about classroom technology. If you, I don't think it's in the book, but if you remember this, he said one was just the tech didn't work and the sheer amount of time teachers had to spend trying to get somebody to go to the classroom to like reboot it. Right. A second was forgotten passwords. Oh, yeah. And then the third was kids pretending to forget their passwords because <laughs> they thought that was like fun and then they could screw around while the teacher tried to... And I think this is like a reality, right? I mean, when you look at the Matt Kraft stuff on Providence and the fact that this that, that study, uh, Matt, Matt has not been asked to provide somebody to do that for every one of the nation's biggest 100 school districts once every year. The fact that that's not happened yet is shocking to me. But when you look at the kinds of interruptions that he's pointing to, tons of these are absolutely within the span of control of school leaders and system leaders. And one of the things Matt points out, if you if folks check out his paper, is when you inter when he interviews the principals, they consistently underestimate how much time is getting wasted. They don't even know how much of time is getting lost, which is exactly what I've found with this stuff where you do these exercises with teachers, when you talk about where time's going in classrooms. And when I've over the years sat down with superintendents or the their leadership team or school leaders. And the idea that these are things that they would expect to have data on the same way they do on reading and math achievement is broken out by SES or race just has never entered their minds. Like it's just taken for granted that we kind of hope everybody's using time well, even in schools and districts, which pat themselves on the back to the moon and back as the nation's leaders when it comes to data driven leadership. 
Yeah, it's really interesting that when you sort of think about it or rethink about it, as you might say, you actually can find some things that you can do right there on time use, right in front of you. All right, one last thing. You just mentioned it. And I'm asking because it's a hobby horse of mine, Rick. Uh, pandemic came, turned schools upside down. We bought millions and millions and millions of devices. Now, in schools across the nation, we got this, we got this mountain of devices. I guess we're going to use them, right? It seems to me that when it comes to how we use not just technology in general, but particularly this pandemic-induced technology, which is sort of like a revolution that could not have happened without the pandemic, and it could be good, it could be unbelievably terrible. You might guess from how I'm asking the question which side I'm on. Um, nonetheless, talk to me about how you think schools and districts should rethink the use of the pandemic-induced technology that is a pretty recent change. Yeah, and first off, let, let, let's not uh, delude ourselves. I mean, I, I'm old enough that, you know, when I went to high school, you know, you would go into, like, social studies teacher, uh, uh, you know, science teacher would send you to get something out of the book storage room, and there would be hundreds of unopened books that had been purchased and sat there until somebody eventually threw them out and they got shut, Paul. Well, you they know. needed the shelf space. <laughs> and, you know, I remember the TVs. You know, old enough, you know, you had TVs and, like, VCRs sitting there, a dozen or 15 of them in, like, my Fairfax County school. And I don't know. They got used once or twice a year. And they, so the idea that these millions of devices that we've purchased with billions of taxpayer-borrowed funds, that these will ever be used is a maybe proposition. There's also the possibility they will sit there barely used until we finally have to, like, throw them out carefully. Um but look, more fundamentally, it's funny because right up until the moment of the pandemic, there was this whole huge, oh, we're flipping the classroom, tech is awesome kind of vibe going on in education. And then we hit the pandemic and people were like, holy cow, this sucks. And now we're like in this weird place on the other side. So and now we've got the AI thing going on. Um, look, my, my take on ed tech and how rethinkers ought to approach it is real simple. Ed tech is good when it makes teaching and learning more human. And people often like give me a double take. No, tech, ed tech is good when it makes teaching and learning more human. So what do I mean? Well, look, if ed tech is getting in between teachers and students, if it is undercutting peer relationships, it is a bad thing. That's one of the reasons pandemic tech sucked so badly is you had a whole bunch of kids sitting in front of a, a laptop or an iPad on their kitchen table and they were all muted and they had the cameras off, and a teacher was rambling at them, and this was an, an hour of this today was school, and then kids did a bunch of stupid a, a, asynchronous assignments, and that was it. Like, this is insane. When does technology work well? Technology works well when it gives kids and teachers more time to do the stuff that actually drives and deepens learning. So the best ed tech I know is the book. Right, Boris Saxberg and I wrote about this years ago. What did the book do that was such great technology? Before it, the only way you could learn stuff from somebody was by being in the same room with them, which meant like if you were in a learning environment, you sat there and somebody talked at you, and you only learned as long as they were talking at you and they were done. And if somebody in your town didn't know about math or science, you couldn't learn about it. What the book did was you could suddenly go home. It flipped the classroom. You could go home and read. And then come and ask questions and get explanations and talk about it. 
you could read it about it even if the person who knew about it lived a thousand miles away. Well, what that did was it brought the opportunities for knowledge and understanding and mastery to kids, and then it created opportunities for teachers and students to build on that. Now, even five centuries later, lots of classrooms do this terribly. Kids will be assigned a book to read at home, and then they will spend a class, even now in 2023, reading paragraphs aloud because the teacher didn't trust that they actually did what they're supposed to do at home. I have no idea how AI is supposed to help with that. If anything, like when AI can write your homework answers for you, it makes that problem much, much worse. Um, but to the extent that kids can get the support, the explanations, that stuff away from a teacher, it means they can spend more time from a teacher asking questions, having conversations, going deep, getting words of encouragement. So tech is good when it is configured to do that. What percentage of tech is configured to do that today? I think well, well under half. Rick Hess, the great school rethink. It's out now. Yes, Go it is. Go out and get it. Rick, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. And uh, we'll have you back. Soon. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Rick Hess. We'll include a link to The Great School Rethink and some of Rick's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take two minutes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.